Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Using science to debunk myths from the pandemic to climate fraud. Thanks for listening to Sky Dragon Slaying on TNT Radio. Hi, welcome back to Sky Dragon Slaying. I'm John O'Sullivan, CEO of Principia Scientific International. And uh, still with me is Joe Postma, a Canadian astrophysicist. Um, One of our main uh, bugbears is the constant lies and misinformation about climate. Um, It's never ending. It's been going on for years. Joe and I have been doing it for 15 years or more. Um, the latest big talk, new green push, is for hydrogen fuels and why governments are starting to count climate deaths to scare you, to pay higher taxes, to fix the temperature. Um, joining us again is a regular guest, um, none other than Steve Gorham. Steve is executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and author of four books on energy, climate change and sustainable development with over 100,000 copies in print. Steve's new book um, is just a second. My computer just died on me. Is a new book is Green Breakdown: The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, and that came out last August. Steve, it's such a pleasure to have you back. There's a lot going on, isn't there, in the in the climate news? Hi, John. Great to join you. Yeah, there is a lot of crazy news around the world, and climate is a big, big part. Yeah. Um. Since you were last on the show, uh, it's just getting crazy. Um. You know, we on a previous guest was talking about the push against farmers cutting back on fertilizers. This net zero campaign, it seems to be dying a death in the EU. The European Union had to roll back its net zero policies. Farmers are in revolt uh, all over the world. It seems like uh, people are gradually waking up, Steve. And uh, what, what's your latest What's your latest take on the whole situation? Yeah, it looks like we're seeing the first signs of the coming green breakdown. Uh, Europe right now is, I think Germany's economy is in recession and England's economy is in recession. And a big part of that is... Uh, the imposed uh, net zero policies and the high cost of energy in Europe. Europe went through an, a, uh, an energy crisis over the last two years. Uh, during the win- year of 2021, the wind didn't blow much in Europe. And uh, as a result, they burned natural gas all year to make up for the shortfall. Wind, wind electricity output was about tw- down about 20 or 30 percent for the year wow. in uh, France, Germany and England. And so they burn natural gas, and by the end of the year, the price of natural gas had been up by a factor of five by December of 2021. This was two months before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And then after that, of course, the prices skyrocketed uh, much, much higher. And if not for uh, liquefied natural gas shipments from the United States and from Qatar in the winter of 2022, uh, Europe wouldn't have been able to keep the lights on. So, uh, and they've been they've been building these policies for many, many years, pursuing the green policies, uh, shutting down, they've shut down about 100 nuclear plants in Europe since the year 2000, uh, most of those in Germany and in England, and um, uh, just the wrong way to go. Uh, and and uh, we're gonna see this around the world as, as nations push for uh, wind and solar and, and getting rid of traditional power plants. So. Uh, these are some of the first signs of, of the coming green breakdown. Yeah, green green breakdown is the theme of your book, the title of your book, and it, it does seem to be coming to pass. It seems to be a case where the people have had enough. A lot of people are sick and tired of the costs, you know, the the enormous extravagance, the wastefulness, and, and they're not, not missing the point that at, at Davos recently, 600 private jets flew in and flew out with these... Uh, <laughs> 
elite, you know, it's always a case of do as I say, not as I do, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that was uh, uh, that was even a smaller uh, 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 carbon dioxide emitting event than uh, COP28 when there were uh, 80,000 people in the Middle East, literally the biggest carbon dioxide emitting event of the year. Almost all those people flew in by either private or commercial jet. And for every uh, kilogram of fuel that you burn, you emit three kilograms of carbon dioxide when you're flying on a commercial jet. So, uh, but, you know, it's... Uh, the uh, <laughs> the irony is huge, but the uh, the logic to try and make an energy transition is is bankrupt. Yeah, and the um the the green alarmists are going to say to you, well, yeah, come on, come on, Steve. We know that the snowfall last this past winter, it, it's not that great. You know, a winter without snow. They're, they're threatening winter without snow. Again, that's proof of cl climate change, isn't it, Steve? We've had a little bit of a low snow year, I think, uh, at least in the United States, the Northern Hemisphere here, uh, uh, North America. But uh, they, uh, people have been saying snow is going to disappear for a long time now. The most famous quote is from Dr. David Viner of uh, the University of uh, East Anglia in the UK about year 2000. He said, children just aren't going to know what snow is. <laughs> and we also have lawsuits in the United States going on in Colorado for the last five years, uh, a number of cities and counties and the ski industry have been suing the oil companies because they say snow is disappearing. But the actual data shows something different. At Rutgers University, there's a group called the Global Snow Lab that takes satellite data and looks at the, the snow extent, which is the amount of, uh, of land that is covered by snow. Uh, they look at uh, at both the North America and Northern Hemisphere, and lo and behold, snow extent has been rising for the last 40 years. Uh, in the winter and the fall, it has been falling in the spring, but overall, uh, we're still getting, uh, the, the oceans are a little warmer, we're getting a lot of evaporation, a lot of that falls as snow. So there, the facts don't support the idea that snow is disappearing, despite what you read in the headlines uh, over and over again. Well, we know yeah. that these people lie and they fake data, don't they? And they manipulate data. So we we know that they're they're lying. We could very well we could very well be cooling and heading clearly into an ex ice age. But they've manipulated and lied about the data so much uh, that they don't want us to to know that, do they? For some reason, uh, these green policies we just had, our previous guest we just we were discussing how these green policies are so environmentally uh, destructive, Steve. Um, so so yeah, they they emit all this carbon dioxide. They go to these conferences and then come up with these green policies, solar. Um, now they're doing hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen would emit water vapor, basically, is the only byproduct. It wouldn't emit any carbon dioxide. I'm not sure that yeah. hydrogen is a, is a very efficient gas. It's very hard to store hydrogen, isn't it? It's uh, it's very yeah. hard to use. You, you think that's a, that's a viable alternative? I mean, they've been talking about hydrogen ever since I was a, ch a child. I mean, that goes back 35 years easily. Um, it's never really been developed. Yeah, there's a tremendous push on for hydrogen right now. What, what uh, the International Energy Agency and many others are advocating is that we take all of our heavy industry. Yeah, there's a tremendous push on for hydrogen right now. What, what uh, the International Energy Agency and many others are advocating is that we take all of our heavy industry, uh, chemicals and steel and, and a bunch of others and, and metals and convert those to using hydrogen fuel instead of natural gas uh, and with the idea that we're going to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. But uh, it, it's really crazy. Hydrogen today, 
doesn't exist as a fuel. There is no hydrogen fuel industry except for a small number of vehicles and some forklifts. About 98 or 99 percent of the hydrogen that is used in the world today, and that's about 95 million tons every year, is used as a uh, ingredient in processes as a feedstock. It's used to produce um, ammonia and used to produce methane and used to uh, uh, reduce uh, direct reduce iron uh, in the steel industry. And so we have no hydrogen fuel industry, but the well, world wants to create. They want to create that, and they want well, to make here's it the a thing, here's the thing. Here's the thing about that yeah. too. It's not a free resource. It requires no. a lot of electricity and power Absolutely. just to make hydrogen. You can't. You, you don't mine hydrogen. Hydrogen. What they mean by hydrogen is hydrogen that comes from water, H two O, right? So they want to use yes. electrolysis methods, right, to split it out of water. That takes a lot of power in the first place. Like these green policies, they're not self sufficient. They they can't sustain themselves, can they? Yeah, it's, it's about 50 to 55 kilowatt hours of electricity for one little kilogram of hydrogen. That's about twice what a, what a big U.S. house uses, uh, two days of electricity at a big U.S. house, just for a single kilogram. And the, the amounts are vast, really. If you wanted to, uh, I, I spoke to the uh, uh, Association of Iron and Steel Technology a year ago, and I was able to compute for them the amount of electricity that would be needed to uh, to produce hydrogen from electrolyzers, from electrolysis, for the steel industry. And it turns out you need about 5,000 terawatt hours of electricity, which is about one and a half times total non-hydroelectric renewable in the world today. That would just be for the steel industry. The chemical industry is about three times as big. You'd need to triple that. Uh, these aren't my numbers. These are International Energy Agency numbers and some others. So, so the amounts are vast. Or another way to look at it is, if you wanted to to uh, drive electrolyzers to produce hydrogen for the steel industry, you need to build 600 new nuclear plants. We have 437 nuclear plants in the world today. So, if you wanted hydrogen for steel, you had to build 600 more. I mean, these numbers are so astronomical. This is just not going to happen. So. And, they call these and, they call these policies they call these policies sustainability. They do this in the name. They use this phrase sustainability when they cannot sustain themselves. The thing about oil is you stick a pipe in the ground, very cheap, very easy. You get all this oil. It's self-sustaining, yeah. right? It's self-sustaining. Yeah. With one oil well, you can go and make a hundred other oil wells because it's a net positive. You get more out, way more energy out than you have to yeah. put in and extracting oil. With hydrogen and any other of these green policies, they don't self-sustain themselves. They, they couldn't, no. as, you're, as you're pointing out. They're net energy hydrogen, negatives. Hydrogen is about five times, uh, uh, green hydrogen is about five times as expensive as hydrogen produced from natural gas. Again, that's on-site production. And then for green hydrogen, we would need pipeline networks. We would need uh, methods to ship it in ships across the seas. That doesn't exist. Uh, we'd have to create two whole whole new industries. Uh, to give you another number, today the value, uh, the International Energy Agency estimates the value of the green hydrogen industry from electrolysis at about a billion dollars a year. That's the total market value. Yet governments have now put up $280 billion. They've pledged $280 billion in subsidies to try and create this industry. Uh, it, it's just remarkable. Nobody would be doing this without the fear of uh, human-caused global warming.
Well, the, the basic fact is that top UN uh, climate official uh, Simon Steele is calling for torrents, not trickles of climate fi finance. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, that is, uh, again, this this is how they, they keep the, the third world nations on, on board. Uh, the third world nations need to develop their economies. They need coal, oil, and natural gas. But to keep them in, involved in this climate thing, what they do is they say, "Well, we're going to we're going to give you much uh, many amounts of cash, huge amounts of cash." Uh, today, about twenty five percent of all uh, foreign aid is tied to climate. Uh, about uh, twenty years ago, there was only four percent of all foreign aid. Now it's twenty five percent. And a couple of years ago, uh, India asked for a trillion dollars a year, a small sum, <laughs> to become a net zero by by 2060, a trillion dollars a year. So uh, the, these amounts seem to be endless, uh, but but most nations are not putting up much money for this. So yeah, the uh, uh, Simon Steele, the new, uh, I think he's going to be head of the, the COP 39 or 29 rather, uh, later this year wants torrents of cash from all the wealthy nations Again, this is a big this is a big United Nations uh, objective uh, to transfer wealth from uh, Europe, the U.S., uh, other wealthy nations to the developing nations. That's always been a goal of theirs, and they're they're trying to do it in the name of climate. The key point here is, um, yeah, again, they want us to cut back while other nations uh, keep building coal fire plants, like China. You know, famously was manufacturing one new a coal-fired power plant every week. But John Kerry, US climate envoy, says that uh, we, we need to ban all American coal-fired power plants, don't we? Is that a good idea? Yeah, that was, that's, uh, this is just an outrageous statement. Today, the world gets 35% of its electricity from coal-fired power plants. It is the number one source of electricity globally. There are about 6,500 coal-fired plants operating today, and the world is in the process of building another thousand, building or planning, yet we have a shortage of electricity today. We have 700 million people that don't have access to electricity. We have literally hundreds of hospitals in, in poor nations that don't have electricity, if you can imagine that. No, nothing for air conditioning, nothing for operating rooms. Uh, we have, and we also have about two billion people that, that suffer either blackouts or brownouts every single day. So about a third of the world's people don't have enough electricity. And you if you have an air conditioner, uh, you, that air conditioner uses more electricity than a third of the world's people get to use on any given day. So uh, this I, this statement by Mr. Carey that we ought to get rid of the world's cold fire power plants, I like it, it's a modern version of what Marie Antoinette said uh, if the if the people don't have uh, food, let them eat cake. I mean, it's mm. it, it really has a disregard for uh, a third of the world's people who need electricity. Mm. Another uh, consequence of that, though, uh, Steve, is that a lot of people, especially in in Germany, it's reported in Germany that people are going out foraging for wood. You know, wood burners are now becoming their new go-to source of heat. Now, it's yep. again the pollution aspects of, of wood burning are incredible, yes. aren't they? It is. There's still about 80 million, 80 million households in Europe, mostly in Eastern Europe, that use uh, wood as a fuel. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. The, the climate people have it exactly wrong. Uh, they want to get rid of natural gas. And uh, 
if you if you uh, if you look at what natural gas has done, sometimes I'll ask audiences which energy source has done the most to reduce global air pollution, and it isn't wind, it isn't solar, it's it's natural gas. Uh, my grandfather in the 1950s in Chicago had a coal furnace in his basement, and many people did. And in Chicago, after it snowed, within four or five days, you'd see a film of black coal dust on all of the snow outside. And in those days, people would do spring cleaning. And the young folks today don't know what that is, but literally, homes would wash down the inside of their walls every spring. They'd wash all their walls to take off the coal dust. And as you say, so if you replace either a a coal furnace or a wood furnace in a home, you reduce particulate levels by about a factor of a thousand if you put in natural gas. So natural gas really is is a tremendous uh, fuel. Uh, by the way, we do have, uh, there's a bit of great news. Just two years ago, uh, it was determined that more people are now using modern fuels, gas, for indoor heating than they are using uh, uh, biofuels. Uh, wood and dung and charcoal. It, it's the first time that has that has in in poor nations that 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 uh, that uh, uh, gas fuels ha has become the main source. So that's really good news, because people get lung diseases. They get all sorts of problems by using uh, a traditional wood wood and uh, charcoal and other things. Yeah. So the, the environmentalists have exact, exactly wrong because of because of the fear of man-made warming. They want to get rid of gas, and that's the thing that's reducing pollution the most. Sorry, Steve. We're going to take a short break. It's TNT Radio. TNT's Patrick Henningsen. Hamza Dahoud was the eldest son of the Gaza Bureau for Al Jazeera, while Dahoud, who previously lost other family members in Israeli bombing raid, and. We would say that this is probably, in terms of conflicts, uh, this many journalists have been lost, uh, killed, injured in the whole of the Second World War, and that lasted uh, a number of years. And only in the last three months are we scraping 100 on the uh, journalist uh, fatality list, which is coming fast and furious out of Gaza. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Hi, welcome back. Uh, we've got Steve Gorham here, climate researcher and writer. Uh, Steve, um, one of the things I want to get across is uh, we posted an article from you on Principia Scientific. Uh, the push now is to start counting climate deaths. Hillary Clinton's come out and poked her head out and into the debate, and she wants us to be counting climate deaths. You know, how do you count climate deaths, Steve? That appears to be the new trend. Yeah, she uh, she spoke at uh, COP28 and called for us to, to track climate deaths. She said there were 60,000 deaths in Europe last year from heat waves and probably 500,000 across the world. Uh, we've talked about this before, I think, on your last show, how uh, warmer weather is actually better for people 
they get they get uh, less infection, less COVID-19 cases in the warm months than in the winter, that sort of thing. And if you if you look at the uh, if you look at MDAT, for example, that's a international the International uh, uh, Disaster Database. They've been tracking deaths from disasters uh, for uh, more than a hundred years now, and they look at floods and droughts and and storms and all the things that the climate folks say are happening and earthquakes as well. The average number of deaths from disasters has been declining. Uh, it's down to more than 90% since the early 1900s. Another example is, is famine. Uh, famine has been all but eliminated globally. Uh, back again in the early, uh, in the, the late 1800s or the early 1900s, uh, we would have something like 10 million famine deaths a decade. Uh, that's down to, to a couple hundred thousand maybe. So again, that's down 95 or 98%. There was also a paper that came out about two weeks ago and it published, I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine, where an author claimed there were about 250,000 climate-related deaths a year. And in the last 20 years, we'd had 4 million people die from the climate. <laughs> but if you look at what he's calling climate deaths, he's calling deaths from diarrheal disease in, in poor nations or malaria. Is all, he calls that a climate death. And even uh, a heart uh, failure cardiovascular disease, he's calling it climate death. So, you know, if you call a, call a heart attack a climate death, you can call anything a climate death. Well, they, they want to make it seem like the climate is out there attacking us, like we're going to suffer climate attacks. Steve, what yeah. is it with these people's need to sensationalize the most trivial and innocuous things that would have always been part of our existence? What is it with their need to sensationalize these things into danger and fear? Like they have some sort of mental problem. Like this is a form of psychosis and paranoia or something. What is wrong with these people and their need to sensationalize these trivial issues? Well, I th my explanation is the world has been captured by a powerful ideology called climatism. Uh, it, it, it really is a modern superstition. Uh, and it's the belief that we are causing dangerous global warming. And I think these folks are sincere. They believe it is the case that we're getting stronger storms and many other things. And it has become the most important thing uh, beyond uh, the uh, millions of people that die from disease every year, about, uh, beyond the people that, uh, that don't have energy, don't have electricity, uh, that don't have fresh water. Uh, climate has become much more important. So it, it is remarkable. And uh, I think we get to about the year 2060 or 2070, the people are going to look back and say, you know, this is this is uh, like the Earth is flat. This was a superstition that that the people engaged in, and uh, uh, so it's going to be remarkable. I hope I get uh, enough years to watch uh, watch some of this reverse. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how many deaths are actually being counted from boredom, boredom from climate change discussion. Because again, I think most people have switched off. And uh, another <laughs> thing that I've noticed is that it's. Uh, a statistical kind of anomaly here, because what they're counting as climate deaths is they estimate the reduction in the number of years. They they kind of come up with a, a notional figure, perhaps one or two years lost off each life. And again, they, what they do is they add, up, they add up the number of years per, you know, from a community. So if they have 70 to 80 people losing a year, they'll count that as one climate life. Again, this is nonsensical because there's no actual real death it's just a kind of trickery with the numbers, isn't it, Steve? 
Well, they, you know, Earth's climate is always uh, powerful in many ways. We do have sea level rise. We do have storms and floods and and disasters. But there, the evidence is not. And, and typically, as uh, as Joe was mentioning, these people take an event and then they they say, "Wow, this has got to be climate change." But they don't look at the overall picture. They don't look at history, and they don't look at what's going on around the world. An example right now is California. If I can take a little bit of a tangent. Uh, two years ago, they were saying we had a drought in California. We had a, a thousand-year drought in California due to climate change. Then we've had these uh, these atmospheric rivers the last two winters that that have that have dumped just loads of rain and snow on California last winter and and this winter again. And now they're saying this is due to climate change. <laughs> but about ten about ten years ago, I presented at a debate and talked about the great. Uh, the great uh, flood and uh, great California flood of 1861, 1862. They had atmospheric, atmospheric rivers at that time, and they got 60 inches of rain in Los Angeles over two months. And usually that's like 10 inches a year. And the entire uh, the entire Central Valley of California was flooded up to the uh, telegraph poles, 20 foot high. And so this is what this is what weather can do, what Earth's climate can do. But the only sensible policy is to adapt to these things. Uh, driving electric cars is not going to control the storms or the weather or anything else. No. I think another point to, has to be made, Steve. Again, a lot of us are waking up uh, to the idea that the real global warming factor is uh, the urban heat island effect. And we, we, most people tend to miss that kind of key issue because, again, if we're living in more, more and more of us are now living in cities, more and more of us are now living in urban environments with concrete and asphalt, um, yeah. fewer trees, and that environment tends to retain heat overnight. And again, the data quite shows, shows quite clearly that the temperature rises are not um, really rises, the lack of a drop in temperature at nighttime. Yeah. A guy by the name of Anthony Watts, who I think you know, uh, who's at the Heartland Institute, did great work many years ago with a bunch of volunteers. They went out, went around to every temperature gauge site in the United States and looked at them and found that 85% of them or so did not meet the requirements of, of the temperature gauging. They're supposed to be on areas that, that are not near concrete buildings, uh, free of any, any sort of thing that could cause uh, heating. But they were all, uh, they, they found them in runways, they found them uh, next to parking lots, all sorts of things. I also have a graph in my first book, Climatism, where a scientist looked at the temperature rise over the last 50 years in three areas. Uh, one was rural, one was suburban, and one was urban. And he found that the temperatures were rising faster in the urban and, and, and next fastest in the suburban. And in the rural areas, there was almost no temperature rise. And again, that's an indication, as you say, of the urban heat island effect. When you put up roads and you put up buildings uh, that absorb sunlight during the day, uh, and it and it retains that heat for the evening, and so you have a you have an effect from human uh, human uh, construction in the local area. But again, from a global point of view, uh, this doesn't appear to really be having effect on global temperatures. This isn't a local effect, but it does affect those temperature gauges. <laughs> Yeah, another thing being found is uh, mainly urban planners are, are realizing that when you remove trees from the urban environment, trees are a wonderful um, kind of um, buffer to the, the heating effect. And uh, when they yeah. planted more and more trees, they find that the temperature is moderated. You see much evidence of that yourself? 
Well, I think that is true. I think trees are a great source. I mean, the the other interesting thing is that if you look at the uh, if you look at the rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide that NOAA tracks at the Mauna Loa facility and other places around the world, you see a line that kind of wavers and goes up and down with the seasons. And that's an effect of, of the foliage in North America in the big landmass areas. As the trees get foliage, they absorb some carbon dioxide and then, and then it, 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 uh, it rises again in the atmosphere when the trees are without leaves. And so the, the, uh, the trees have a big, big effect on what's going on and nature has a big, big effect on carbon dioxide and, uh, and the climate as well. The and speaking effect. of and speaking of drought, trees actually uh, prevent drought. I have a, a friend who's a, a farmer here up north in Alberta, and, and uh, they were suffering drought for a few years there. His uh, his his hay crops were doing very poorly, but he has hmm. these small plots of uh, forest all over. You know, as as open land farms do, just small plots of forest, not not large, like a few acres. And he says it's really interesting because these forests aren't suffering from drought whatsoever. These plots of trees. They seem to retain their own moisture, have some sort of cycle within them once you have a, a couple hundred trees or 50 trees or something. And uh, yeah, so basically the solution for drought is, you know, have more trees planted planted around. They mm -hmm. seem to re retain water in, in the ground and just in, in, the, in their own local environment somehow. Very interesting. And the good news is that we have uh, uh, either... Uh, uh, flat forests or forest growth now in about a hundred nations around the world. Uh, the earth is the earth is still losing uh, forested area according to the United Nations, but that that rate of loss has been declining for many decades now. So probably by 2050 we will have net global forest growth. And the, the spots where the forest is is still declining are uh, Africa, Southeast Asia, Central South America a little bit because people are still using wood for fuel and, and agriculture is, is cutting down some of those areas. But as uh, people convert to modern fuels and they stop burning wood, we're gonna have more and more forest growth around the world. So I view that as a, a real bright light. We're gonna have forest growth, give us a couple, two or three more decades uh, globally. Well, and it's the increase in CO2, which is actually promoting that greening, isn't it, right? It's actually yeah. benefiting. The CO2 increase is, is great for the environment. That's part of it. Yeah. A, uh, uh, again, in my latest book, Green Breakdown, I talk about a study in Australia where they took satellite data and they looked at forested areas over the last 30 years. And and they do see a thickening and, and a growing of a forested area, in particular in some areas that, that wouldn't be, be desert areas, that sort of thing. And they attribute that to, to uh, carbon dioxide. The other thing is from an agricultural point of view, we are we are, uh, we've had another interesting factor since about the year 2000. Again, United Nations data. Uh, we're using less land for agriculture, even though the population is growing. For many years, we were using more and more land, but about the last 20 years, we're actually putting less land, uh, pasture land and farmland into use. That's because farmers are so productive. They can grow so much on the land that they have and so uh, farmers are actually giving more more land back to nature globally now. So there's a number of positive trends. Yeah, I just want to throw into that mix there to back up what you're saying, Steve, is uh, we ran an article uh, in 2017 on Principia Scientific International. There was a study by Nature um, that pointed out that in urban areas that have a policy of, of, of growing trees, 
they, they're seeing the trees are actually growing really healthily. There's a, there's a boost in the, the greening, and that, that's been a, a phenomenon that's been growing in most in 10 metropolitan areas since 1960. Again, urban trees are a godsend, and uh, we, rather than getting rid of them, we should be planting more. So again, it, it's something that plays into the argument that CO2 is a good thing, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a great thing for for uh, for growing things. It uh, makes plants go bigger and faster. They get bigger root systems. They get bigger, thicker tree trunks. They're more resistant to drought. Uh, having CO2 in the atmosphere is the best thing. Dr. William Happer of, of Princeton University and uh, founder of the uh, CO2 Coalition says we need more and more CO2. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, a, con um, a contrary, but a correct voice. Yeah, the um, the 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 alarmists alarmists say that uh, current levels are about four hundred and fifteen parts per million and rising. If you talk yeah. to anybody who works in horticulture, anybody who actually owns a commercial greenhouse, they'll say they want something over a thousand parts per million to optimize uh, production. I mean, again, it's yeah. kind of contradicted. The real world contradiction is there for all to see, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Is another thing. I, another little theory of mine that I've been working on. If you if you plot the rise in atmospheric CO2, uh, again, measured at Mauna Loa, as you say, 415, 420 parts per million, you see it's been rising very steadily and actually accelerating for the last, uh, last 20, 30, 40 years. And then you, pr you plot the curve, which this is CO2 emissions globally. Uh, you find that is very irregular. It goes up and down. And in 2020, during COVID-19, we actually had about a uh, eight to ten percent drop in global CO two emissions. Now that mm. that rise in in uh, in human emissions is supposed to be driving the rise in atmospheric CO two, but it doesn't look like it. <laughs> there's almost yeah, there's no, no reaction. There's no reaction in that rising curve from that's such, a, that's such an excellent point. That that's real empirical science demonstrating yeah. it, isn't it? The CO2 seems to be being, it's coming from the mantle of the, the earth. The earth itself is outgassing it, it seems. Yeah, I'll send you a couple graphs, Joe, of, of what I'm working on with that. But it's, uh, you know, and, and some people say, well, the, the rise in human emissions affects it over the long term. But my my question on that is, well, if, if we have if we have a, a monthly variation due to, due to trees, which you can see in the rise in CO2 curve, why doesn't a big shift in in uh, human emissions also affect that curve? Because it would affect it in the short term, but it, it doesn't appear to affect it. So as you say, I think that rise is overwhelmingly uh, driven by nature, and man-made emissions are a small part. But that is that is kind of an outlier theory right now. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that kind of backs up what we're saying is Henry's law that the outgassing of CO2 from the oceans is is kind of tied into Henry's law that the warmer it yes. is, the more the, the outgassing. And you you can do that experiment yourself. You if you warm up a, a can of soda and, and you open the can, it you get this massive fizzing effect. But if you put it yes. in the fridge, it's cooled down. It doesn't fizz as much. Again, it just shows you that uh, CO2 um, emissions tend to follow rises in temperature, not the other way around. Well, I've always said that, you know, they, they've kind of defeated uh, 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 Henry's law. Henry's law says there's a there's a, a ratio between a gas dissolved in a liquid and a gas in the atmosphere over the liquid. And as you say, you can you can demonstrate that with with a can of uh, a soda with carbon dioxide in it. So today we have we have about 50 times as much carbon dioxide in the oceans as in as is in the atmosphere. 
and the oceans are always releasing and absorbing CO2. But but the global climate scientists say, well, what what if we double the atmospheric CO2, what will happen? And, and so you got to kind of scratch your head because that would not be possible that you could double atmospheric CO2 to keep Henry's law the same. You'd have to double the amount in the oceans, which is clearly an impossibility. And so the climate scientists have kind of thrown out Henry's law and they've invented some things like buffer layers in the oceans and other things to say that it doesn't work. But Again, that's another reason why I think uh, atmospheric CO2 is driven by uh, natural factors, not not our industries. Well, that's You're such a good to point, Steve right, Gorin, John? Climate researcher. Sorry, we're going for a break now. It's TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Hey, did you happen to catch Chris Wallace over on CNN playing games? Now for another edition of Tell Me Why I'm Wrong. Tucker Carlson showed up in Moscow this week to interview Vladimir Putin. It turned out to be anything but an interview. Putin droned on for two hours and seven minutes while Tucker sat there like an eager puppy. Occasionally, but rarely, he got in a question, but apparently that's not why Tucker went to Moscow. During the Cold War, gullible Westerners who spread Soviet propaganda were dismissed as useful idiots. Calling Tucker that is unfair to useful idiots. And then Wallace's panel continued just bashing Tucker for his interview and not even giving him credit for asking about the release of our imprisoned Wall Street Journal reporter. He was trying to get attention for himself and make himself relevant that I can score this interview. And the reason he scored this interview is because He's a lapdog. I'm surprised you didn't mention, though, the fact that he did ask some questions about Evan Gershkovich. Well, and come Wall Street on. Journal, uh, he had to. Ah, the left just can't stand to see Tucker continue to succeed, even without the Fox brand behind him. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show 9 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, right here on TNT. My name's Stacy. I'm 57, and I was adopted in 2020. We were adopted in 2019. And we were adopted in 2021. We had a house, um, and it sounds crazy, but it wasn't a home. The one thing that Jake and Emma brought is it became a home. When I met Dakota, he had just turned 14. You weren't there for the first this and the first that. I missed the first words, but we got a lot of other firsts. I'm watching her say, oh my God, I cannot believe I got my license. And she's like, I passed. And I'm like, girl. <laughs> See them grow. It is. They chose to love us. They didn't have to. They chose us. Family. You and you. Kids in the middle. What I thought was a complete life was nowhere near complete, <laughs> but it is now. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit adoptuskids.org. Using science to debunk myths from the pandemic to climate fraud. Thanks for listening to Sky Dragon Slaying on TNT Radio. Yeah, we're having an interesting conversation with our friend Steve Gorham, a climate researcher and writer. And uh, one of the things that you put our way, Steve, a, a good talking point uh, for the last section of the show is uh, Yale Climate Connections. They've just published an article, Should Climate Change Keep You From Having Kids? Oh, population control, Steve. Yeah, population control, it's back again. It's just got another reason. <laughs> and it is, it is a shame because many, many young folks are, are concerned about that their kids won't have a, 
uh, a climate that's livable when they get older. And, and so they're saying, well, I'm not going to have kids. Really, really very sad. I mean, I love my family. My wife and I live in two places to be close to the kids and the grandkids, and I, I wouldn't do without it. And a bunch of these uh, young ladies are going to get up to be 60 and 70 and not have a family, and then they're going to realize this climate thing was, oh. was a bunch of nonsense, and it's going to be very, very sad. Uh, but, you know, we've been uh, worried about the climate for, for many decades now. The most famous example was uh, Dr. Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb in the 1960s and uh, said that hundreds of millions of people were going to die in the next uh, decade uh, from overpopulation. He's probably the guy that, that's been most wrong in history that I can see. <laughs> he also said that if he was a betting man, he'd bet 50-50 that by the year 2000, the United Kingdom wouldn't be around because of overpopulation. But nevertheless, it had a tremendous impact on, on the policies of the world. Uh, the U.S. government was tying uh, uh, international aid, uh, foreign aid to population control in the 60s and 70s. Uh, we had China that that reportedly had 300 million forced abortions and 300 million forced sterilizations in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Very, very sad. And now China, of course, has declining population. Uh, that's a big problem for their economy. But so we, anyway, we now have another reason not to grow the population. <laughs> Well, they target these messages to Western countries, don't they? They they really target this against Western European white people, it seems like. And then at the same time, they bring in massive immigration. They say, oh, you're not having enough children, so we need to bring in massive replacement immigration. It's like, well, you told us to not have children for the environment. Oh, well, yeah. So we're, now we're going to replace what would have been your children with uh, people from the second and third world. So it, it really seems like it's a purposeful policy there to uh, to basically replace Western countries with a different new population, doesn't it? There have been, and there have been a number of folks that, that just uh, uh, don't like the population. Of, uh, another famous guy, Jacques Cousteau, the famous oceanographer, uh, said uh, we shouldn't have more than a billion people on the surface of the earth, that sort of thing. So uh, it's it's been something that, I mean, the great, great news is that uh, the uh, fertility rates have dropped uh down to about uh, two across the world. We have more than 70 nations now that have zero population growth or less. Uh, population is slowing. We'll probably get globally to zero population growth within uh, 30, 40 years. And as societies mature and as infant mortality is eliminated and, and as disease is controlled, uh, uh, women enter the workforce and families tend to be smaller. It's a natural development of societies and nations, and it doesn't have to be imposed by leaders or, or some kind of ideology. And you know, the leaders always think they're smarter than, than the people. Oh, we gotta tell people what to do and how many kids to have. A very similar to, to the climate thing now, we have to tell everybody what to drive and what to eat and and what food to use so that we can control global warming. Just, just a different angle on, on a similar subject. Yeah, I want to throw into what you're saying to back you up is a World Economic Forum advisor, Professor Sarah Harper. She's an Oxford uh, academic. She made the news last August. She, she actually said um, population collapse in the West is a good thing for the planet. She specifically mentioned the UK. She's, uh, you know, saying oh, what a wonderful thing for the planet, for Western society to collapse. Um, no mention of, uh, you know, well, and that, means no that, that means white European people. That means European white people, doesn't it, John? Yeah. 
yeah 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 um again as you pointed out steve it's naturally kind of in the dna of humans to to want to have a smaller families when they know survival rates are better yeah. uh, again i'm speaking as somebody with irish ancestry my family my grandfather had 12 children uh, his yeah. father had 10 12 children that was the done thing because you knew by the law of averages two or three of your children would die yeah. in the course of yeah. their childhood uh, again, infant mortality is, has never been so low, and therefore people don't need to breed so much. And again, people know that with improved medical care, you can pretty much have an every child uh, grow to adult life. And it's not something now that concerns us. But again, these people want to scare us and they think you're doing good. It's like a virtue signaling thing to encourage people to go into support trans, uh, the trans movement. You know, for example, if you are sterilizing children at uh, puberty, saying it's a good idea that you change your gender. Well, in effect, that's a sterilization and uh, uh, outcome, isn't it? It's not about empowering people. It's taking away their ability to reproduce. Yeah, and, and society is, is uh, continues to grow tremendously. Uh, uh, we continue to put out food. Uh, one of the great things that, that happened and, and why uh, Dr. Ehrlich was wrong with the population bomb was that food production increased uh, uh, much faster than, than population because of, of the, the modern inventions uh, that we've had to produce food. Uh, and even the whole, the whole climate concern I just heard a lecture the other day, and I'm forgetting the name, a, a guy at the uh, uh, University of Chicago, but he was pointing out that by the year 2099, 2100, uh, we could lose 30% of, of the GNP. Now, he meant a 30% factor, but, but a growth of 3% a year on GNP means we're going to increase by 900% globally by the year 2021. So you're taking 30% off 900%. It's it's almost a not, and that was in the worst countries. In smaller countries, it'd be two to five percent. In the wealthy countries, so there's almost no effect. Yet we have all this alarm, and the world spending a trillion dollars a year, and all these restrictions on everyone. Uh, the numbers are are very very small uh, 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 compared to uh, societal improvement that we're going to see over the next uh, seventy five years. Mm. Yeah, demographers, they tend to point to imminent uh, population collapse. Uh, the Lancet, uh, they produced a study, I'm going back to uh, 2022, demographers warn of impending population collapse. We we had that on Principia Scientific International. And um, they're saying, again, because of China's imposed one child per family policy, um, they're going to see by the end of the century, the population of China is shrunk by will shrink by 668 million. Pretty much wow. that that's the death of China as we know it, isn't it, Steve? I saw that again the other day, a headline, 60% decline by the year 2100. I think people will probably change. They'll come around and, and figure out how to change their, their methods a little bit. But we do have many, many nations now, Japan, China, South Korea, many nations in Europe where, where the population growth is, is uh, very low. Uh, and and not uh, not at the 2.2 uh, children per woman that, that generally is needed. Uh, we'll just have to see again. I think leaders need to leave it up to the people and up to the families, and they'll figure out what they need to do. Uh, don't be telling them don't have kids because uh, it, it's hurting the planet and the climate or, or, or any other factors.
Yeah, just to go back to that Lancet study, it says both statistically and anecdotally, birth rates around the world are significantly below what the UN projected. Elon Musk came yeah. out and said it himself. He, he, Elon <laughs> Musk has warned. Again, he, he was once the darling of the left, and now he's pretty much pushed onto the far right camp for daring to say the unthinkable thing that, uh, you know, we need to have more children, not fewer children. Well, I do think so. I'm a Christian. Uh, the Lord told us to be fruitful and multiply. And I, I think uh, it's actually a failure of many of the churches of the world not to be promoting families and saying you should be you should be having more children. You should grow a family. It seems like people are, are interested in their own career and not a family and, and a little bit of a selfish point of view. And then we have all these other scares like climate that uh, that seem to get into everybody's way. But but that's a little topic that's outside of what I usually talk about energy and all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we see everything connected, Steve, and I'm sure you see everything is connected. We we saw the the pandemic, the COVID thing. It, again, yeah. the methodology of these alarmists is is to put on the pedestal their selected experts who often are just pandering to policymakers' whims. They've got wonderful credentials, but never ever get anything right in their life. Relying on computer models with gigo, garbage in, garbage out. They never pay the price, do they, Steve? One false prediction after another, and they still get the accolades. It does seem that's the case. You touched on one other thing too. Uh, this counting climate deaths, they want to do like we, we saw with COVID. You know, we had a daily count for every country and every city both deaths and cases, and they love to have that for climate, and that would really raise alarm with everyone. Uh, but it, it's just not—it's just not going to work the same way. No, people are getting wise, and I think one of the things to get wise about is the use of AI. We, we said it with the previous guest that artificial intelligence is not what they make it out to be. Uh, Joe, you, you said yourself, it's again over who who does the programming, who writes the algorithms. We're led to believe that these are kind of sentient beings and the computer says this, and therefore the computer can't be wrong because it's impartial. Well, it's quite the opposite, isn't it, Steve? The computer knows that only knows what the, the programmer tells it to, to say. We'll have to see how that develops. One thing AI is going to do, though, is create a, a tremendous new demand for electricity, um, up from about 1.5% of the world's electricity up to about 10%, what the, what the projections are. So, so this whole idea that we can... We can close all the coal and the uh, natural gas plants. At the same time, we're going to run all the cars on electricity, run all the home appliances on electricity, and we're going to do this AI thing, and we're going to create all this electricity to produce hydrogen. <laughs> just, I mean, very con contrary ideas, just not going to work. No. Yeah, well, AI so, can do is, is certainly going to do some fun things for us, isn't it, John? Right? Yeah, sure, it'll be able to solve some problems that are complex and simply require a lot of computational power. But these things aren't sentient; they're not conscious. Uh, they, 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 they have no <laughs> self-awareness, right? But no. people are going to treat them like that, aren't they? Yeah, they, they are. Well, that's the danger. It, it's human nature. I tend to think humans are we we like to find shortcuts to to time-consuming tasks. Um, we get bored easily. We don't like repetition. And I, I think that's why Henry Ford, um, he, he realized that the production line system was very efficient, but very, very boring. But people don't naturally want to be um, production workers. And so, again, this idea of having AI to take away that burden from us, to free us all up, is kind of trying to sell to us a utopia that isn't really there because I, I don't think we can trust it. I don't think we have the kind yeah. of – we're becoming more aware now that we just can't trust these things, can we, Steve? 
Yeah, and one thing I fear is that AI is going to be used to promote more ideology from governments. You know, you need to do this, you need to do that. Well, we'll program it in all the AI and it'll be coming out everywhere. <laughs> That's precisely so, what they're doing with it. That's exactly what the point of it is, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I like the fact that um, what they're doing, I, I, you may see this yourself, you may disagree with me, but one of the things I'm seeing is the, is the t tendency to self-diagnose. The use of the internet to encourage people to do their own research, which is great, but again, I think the powers that be are catching on to that. And there's like, for example, here in the UK, you can go onto the you know, NHS website and pretty much read up on a subject yourself and then self-diagnose. And you, um, yeah. that is kind of a recipe there for, again, you know, manipulating people's ways of doing things. Not, not you know, the powers that be will use that to their own, uh, for their own agenda, won't they, Steve? Yeah, unfortunately, that's what's going to happen. We'll just have to see that roll out as well. Yeah. So, Steve, um, we've got another couple of minutes left. What's your what's what's happening? What's uh, happening for you this coming year? You know, we, we're we've been talking doom and gloom. We've talked to, for fifty or five minutes about all the negative stuff. Is there anything good that you want to talk about? <laughs> well, for me personally, it's to speak to a lot of different industry groups, um, energy and uh, agriculture and transportation. I have a. a uh, there was a time I thought my, maybe my uh, professional speaking was going to go away because I was too controversial, but I uh, I had my best year ever last year, and this year many, many other groups that, that want to hear about, about energy, about net zero, about uh, the possible future, so I'm doing quite a bit of that, and uh, we'll just have to see your, how the... This is through the Climate Science Coalition of America, isn't that right? Yeah, but I'm I'm just an independent speaker and, and, uh, and a researcher, so... So I speak to businesses mostly about energy, but I usually get get a climate discussion in there as well. And occasionally I have people walk out of the room, but uh, or I or I get a, what I what I call a uh, when did you stop beating your wife question, but but not too often. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's um, the kind of thing we we're always looking at is is the joining the dots, Steve, and and I think we're joining the dots about so many political issues, so many agendas. Again, the profit motive is king. We know that people like to make a lot of money out of the climate uh, boondoggle, um, just like they do with Big Pharma with, with the, the pandemic. Again, everything is linked. It's the same characters. Are you seeing that yourself? Are you identifying these uh, like dystopian? Well, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot. I want to say there's a lot of impacts on businesses. I'll give you another example. The state of New York is now adding a tax to propane sales. And and so if you want to sell propane, you have to bid in a, in a kind of reverse auction. You bid as high as you can to win, and then you pay more tax. And they're going to take this tax and subsidize heat pumps in New York so they can reduce wow. global warming. I mean, it's... Wow. It, and, and by the way, uh, uh, NYSERDA, the uh, energy outfit in New York, did a study about seven years ago, said that only 4% of people could switch to heat pumps cost-effectively. So they got to subsidize it. But this is going on in various ways all over the country uh, and probably all over the world. People trying to uh, push these renewables and it's impacting businesses in big ways. Yeah, not only that, it's the same thing with the electric car, Steve. You know, if you're living in a high rise, if you're living in, in, in a building, a high rise apartment, you can't plug your EV in if it's uh, nope. you know, 100 feet, 200 feet away from you. It's kind of insane, isn't it? But um, anyway, Steve, Steve, your website is stevegoram.com. We heartily recommend people go and visit that. Yeah, we'd like to yeah. have you back again, maybe in a month or so, to give us another update, Steve. So um, 
Keep up okay, the good great. work. We wish you well. And uh, Steve Gorham on TNT Sky Dragon Slaying, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very Thanks, much. Thanks, John. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Steve. <laughs>